0: It's great to have with us uh, Eugene Peterson again. Uh, Dr. Peterson has been a professor for uh, 30-some years, a pastor for a couple of decades. As a seminary student in Michigan, my wife and I had the privilege of traveling with him a little bit, and we'd be the special music, and he'd preach, and so encouraged by his love for the ministry, and his love for Christ, his love for the Word, and that just rubbed off on all of us guys as we were going through seminaries, impacted the lives of hundreds of men who now pastor churches around the country. He taught at Detroit Baptist Seminary for 11 years, and uh, about 20 years at San Francisco Theological Seminary and has been retired uh, for uh, a few years. He's 88 years of age, and um, came to know the Lord as a 17-year-old. Isn't it great to hear from a Christian who's been walking with the Lord for 70 years, and who's 88 years old? That's just... That's for Mark. He tells me I've got to pull him out of retirement every time I bring him back to Colonial. But he's going strong. I have young men who give me trouble over three services. And I asked him, how are you doing, Doc? He says, I'm ready to go. Get out of the way. So I will here in <laughs> just a minute. But uh, let me tell you, uh, let me add this word. You know, when you hear that somebody's been walking with the Lord who's 88 years of age, you might You might be tempted to think, well, you know, the reason he's walking with the Lord is because maybe he had a little easier than I do. To have 77 years of knowing the Lord, and today, as an 88-year-old man, to speak of his faithfulness, he probably just had an easier lot in life. It's not true. He won't tell you much, but I'll say just a little bit. His wife, he's been caring for her for a number of years, is wheelchair-bound now. He's presided over the funeral of his daughter many years ago, at the age of 30, 35. And uh, uh, she had three daughters. And uh, because of the home situation, uh, Dr. Peterson and his wife volunteered to raise those three girls, which they have raised them. And uh, one of the daughters, his granddaughter, is uh, mentally disabled in her 30s, still living with them. So when we talk about someone walking with Christ, we're talking about persevering. It's, it's, it's a discipline in the right direction for a long time. The same thing you're going through is you decide to live for Christ, not because it's an easier road than someone else, but because Christ is faithful, and he can attest to that. So it's a, it's a delight to have him back here and, and preaching away and still in love with Christ and his word, faithful to him because God has been faithful. Eugene Peterson. Help me welcome our friend and a friend of friends, Dr. Eugene Peterson.
1: (laughs) Stephen Davey and I, as he said, were together at the Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary where I was a teacher and taught such subjects as homiletics, church history, Baptist history, and pastoral theology, and uh, maybe sometime English Bible. But I remember him also as a piano tuner. (laughs) He came to our home and tuned our piano. But I receive his messages. I love his messages, which are sent to me by June Volstad. And uh, I love to read his gifted writings. And he and his wife, Marcia have come a long way since those 25-plus years ago in southeastern Michigan. I'd like to speak to you on the subject. Three views of life. The alley view, the balcony view, and the Calvary view. And our text is found in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 15. A man ran a restaurant in another day, and he advertised for a boy to come and help him. A lad came in and applied for the job. And the owner, restaurant owner said... I'll give you ten dollars a week plus meals, and the boy asked, "Well, how are the meals And that restaurant owner patted his big, fat stomach and said, "I eat here." <laughs> that restaurant owner must have been a good ad for that lad because he took the job. Are you a good ad for your church where they eat Colonial Baptist Church here in Cary, North Carolina, in the eastern part of the United States. Are you a good ad for Christ? Does your changed life, your outstanding love, and your winsome personality draw people to the church and to Christ? Look at the cigarette ads Lucky Strike, Camel, Marlboro, Pall Mall. People say, I want some. Give me some of this. And millions and billions of cigarettes are sold throughout the world. When Jesus was up on earth two millennia past, he said the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. If the world presents their products in such an interesting and attractive way, what can we do as Christians to offer faith, love, hope, joy, contentment, Christ and heaven? In this text we have representatives of the alley view, the balcony view, and the Calvary view. And the first of these is the alley view. Where is this mentioned? In the 11th verse. And a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And When he had spent all there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want, and when joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would fain have filled his belly with husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Well, this is a life that is characterized by sinful and selfish living. It is a life lived in the alley. It is a life that is lived in the gutter. And we see that he was a... It describes here that he was a self-seeker, a sightseer, and a spendthrift. He was a self-seeker. Get all that you can. He was a sightseer. Go as far as you can. And he was a spendthrift. Spend all that you can. And we note, for example, in verse 12, that he was a self-seeker, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He took all that he could, loaded his suitcase, turned his back on everything that was good and said, Goodbye, Father. The prodigal son brought distress to that home and broke his father and mother's heart. And instead of children's laughter, there came parental sobs. Cain, centuries ago, dragged the first home into disgrace gave evidence of the eternal struggle that would be raised to keep the home pure and perfected. Young people, home is to be a little heaven on earth. Do you help make it so? Out of a beautiful home, the great Carlisle came. Out of another home came, characterized by energy, came Napoleon Bonaparte. And out of a home where a mother sang into the ears of her infant son, Mendelssohn stood at last as the musician of the world. And out of a home characterized by courage and conviction, Martin Luther came, who turned the world upside down in Germany when he preached the gospel and justification by faith. Out of another home came the well-known Charles Haddon Spurgeon, of metropolitan tabernacle who stirred Europe and even America in the 19th century. Young people, I ask you, what are you doing for your home? What are you doing against your home? The prodigal took all that he could. He drained his father and disgraced his parents and left. He was a self-seeker. Get all that you can. But not only was he a self-seeker, he was a sightseer. Go as far as you can. So it's indicated in verse 13. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. There is the call of the wild within him. He thought within himself, if I can just get away from dad, if I can just get away from the discipline of home and from mother's old ideas. And so he goes across the miles, through the fruited valleys and over the mountains. Some of you ask, what did he get? And others say, well... He had lots of fun as he spent his father's hard-earned money. He bathed in the sunshine of the beaches and lapped up the fun in the cities. And he associated with the red light district and lived in the rottenness of sensuous pleasure as he spent his father's hard-earned money. As you say, he had lots of fun, great fun. Yes, he had fun, if that's your idea of fun, living in the gutter. He was a self-seeker, a sightseer, and he was a spendthrift. Spend all that you can. Verse 13 says, he wasted his substance in riotous living. He went forth in the flush of fortune and spent with a lavished hand. The platters of food and the glasses were filled again and again. One can see him as he lifts his glass and drinks a toast to the old man back on the farm and to the memory of his mother whose apron strings he was once tied and to the older brother who remained at home. And he pulled on his mustache as everyone laughs and laughs and laughs as he sits in the midst of half-nude women in the goofballs of laughter. One who lives such a life needs a lot of money to get along. Dr. T.T. T. Shields of Toronto, Canada, told about an Irishman who wished that he had a million dollars. You don't have to be Irish to wish you had a million dollars. I'm Danish, and I wish I had a million dollars. <laughs> and to spend it properly, of course. And they asked this Irishman, what would you do if you had a million dollars? He said, I'd buy the biggest alarm clock that I could find. And then what? I'd set it for five o'clock in the morning. And then... When it went off, I'd turn over and shut it off and say, Shut up. I don't have to get up. <laughs> and I'd roll over and go back to sleep. A million dollars would last a long time for someone who did nothing but stay in bed. But for the one who travels and eats and drinks and he goes with a fast crowd, it will not last long. This way is lived by the self-seeker the sightseer and the spendthrift and it led him to the pigsty where he was haunted by his memories and surrounded by shame and guilt and devastating sin. When he came home he didn't have any shoes on his feet. He was cold and hungry. He had lost his character, his manhood. But thank God he repented. There's forgiveness at the Father's house no matter how far one has roamed. No matter what one has done there is the kiss of forgiveness and there is the enjoyment of the Father's house when one repents. This lad lived in the alley in the gutter as millions of Americans do wherever we go. There's self-seekers and sightseers and spendthrifts. And then there is the other brother the older rebellious brother who remained at home. He lived in the balcony. And where do we read about him? In verse 25 of our text, the elder son was in the field, and he came home and drew nigh to the house. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father has killed the fat calf, because he has received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in, therefore, his father came out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I any of thy commandments. And yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. This typifies the older brother, the balcony view. he was pharisaical, he was superior, he stood head and shoulders above everyone else, placed himself on a pedestal. and he did the twist. He twisted himself into being a nice guy. And we read in this text, if you read carefully, that he presented a haughty spirit. He pretended a sinless life, and he proclaimed a jealous disposition. He presented a haughty spirit. Why? He says, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. He felt no error in himself, no necessity for repentance. He reminds us of the publican and the Pharisee who went into the temple to pray and the Pharisee cried out and said, I thank God that I'm not as other men. I'm competent and generous and cultured and sufficient and a moralist. He placed himself head and shoulders above everyone else. He had a haughty spirit and stuck his chin in the air. He lived in the balcony. He presented a haughty spirit. And for some reason or other, he pretended a sinless life. Even though he lived the life that he did, he didn't seem to think that it amounted to much, that there was no sin involved because he says in verse 29, neither transgressed I at any time. He's like multitudes of a people in America who believe that they do not live in sin, that they're not dead in trespasses and sin. Dr. Walter Meyer, the great Lutheran, our preacher, who died 55 years ago from a series of heart attacks and who was the head of the Old Testament department at Concordia Theological Seminary in St. Louis. And some of you may have heard him. He was on the air for many, many years. During his time, he took a... Poll of American people to discover how many of them lived sinless lives, and he discovered that 18 percent, or 25 million Americans, believed that they lived quite respectable lives. And I met one of these men one time. I went into a barber shop in the Bay Area. This barber shop was operated by two Greeks, Chris and Andrew. Chris was a Christian, a believer. He loved the Lord. Andrew didn't believe he was an infidel and he cut my hair that day and during the time he cut my hair he told me about the life that the remarkable life that he had lived that he had never broken any of the Ten Commandments and I thought how wonderful to have my hair cut by the hand of a man who had never committed a sin What he needed was a message from the book of Romans, the third chapter. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. He presented a haughty spirit. He pretended a sinless life. And he proclaimed a jealous disposition. Why we read in verse 29 You never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. The sin of jealousy gnawed upon his soul. Remember Joseph, oh, how Joseph was hated by his brothers, how they disliked him. And the reason is found in the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis and verse 4. When his brethren, or his brothers, saw that their father, Jacob, Loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Jealousy affected Joseph's brothers. It affected their speech. It fostered hatred. And do you remember Saul? Oh, how Saul disliked David, the king of Israel. How he hated him. And why is this the case? I'm using my imagination, but I imagine Saul came home from the battlefield one day and he was walking into town. And as he walked down the street, why, there were some women standing on the corner singing a song that was obnoxious to him. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul said, that miserable shrimp, I'll fix him. And he tried to kill him by sticking him through with a javelin and Sticking him to the Judean ground. It affected his life. It says in 1 Samuel 18 Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands, and what can he have more but the kingdom? Jealousy affected Saul, it affected his speech, it fostered hatred. And it brought his downfall. He sought the witch of Endor. And God became silent in his life. The heavens became as brass. And it was death and disaster for Saul. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave we read in the Song of Solomon. It brings us down, down, down. We ought to treat it like a rattlesnake. And step on it and crush it. Because jealousy is as cruel as the grave the prodigal took the alley view he traveled the high low road the older brother took the balcony view he traveled the high road but one is just as sinful as the other the high road is just as sinful as the low road because one leads to self-sufficiency and the other leads to insufficiency and then there was the father of these two sons what a remarkable man he was How we love to read about him. Because he had the Calvary view. He walked on the Calvary road. And where do we read about him? In the 20th verse. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off. His father saw him and had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him. Father I have sinned against heaven. And in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth a robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fat calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. This is the Calvary view, a view that sees a lot further than oneself. It is not the low road of life. It is not the superior road of life. It is the right road of life, the one that we should traverse on and adhere to. And we find in reading this text that this father was moved with compassion. He was motivated with forgiveness, and he was marked with giving. He was moved with compassion. Notice again verse twenty the son arose and came to his father when he was yet a great way off his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him the Greek word here for kisses kissed him much or colloquial English it would be he smothered him with kisses And one can picture this father as he waits for his son to come home he's been gone for years and he looked in the horizon and waited and waited and one day His figure appeared, and he ran with all of his might down the lane, lost his dignity, and fell on the neck of his besmirched lad and smothered him with kisses. It reminds us of another incident that happened in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. Paul had been in Ephesus sometime, and he was leaving, and the people went down to the seaport. The elders went down. They would see his face no more. They would no longer feel the warmth of his love and here is the scene and when he had thus spoken Paul kneeled down and prayed with them all and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they would see his face no more this is the kind of forgiveness that Joseph gave his People, it seems to me that when a Christian has been in a church for a number of years, say 15, 20, 25, 30, 40 years, he ought to have some compassion for the prodigals, for the leaders of the church and for everyone in between. He was moved with compassion, he was motivated with forgiveness. That's what it says in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth a robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This is forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that God gives. When the missionaries first came to Labrador many years ago, they found no word in the Eskimo language for forgiveness. So they had to put one together. They made it up. Not being able to think about it anymore. That's forgiveness. Not being able to think about it anymore. And that's the kind of forgiveness that Joseph gave his brethren. That's the kind of forgiveness that this father gave his sons. And that's the kind of forgiveness that God has given you in the person of Christ. His father never carried a grudge. He had been deeply wounded, yet he forgave all that his repentant son had done. Cortland Meyer was pastor of Baptist Temple in Brooklyn, New York. He had in his congregation a very astute lady whose name was Margaret Slattery. On one Sunday night, Pastor Meyer had gone into the pulpit unprepared, which sometimes happens to us he was very busy that day he had other things to do and he didn't have time to put the material and and garner that message and she became very indignant Margaret Slattery wrote a letter to the pastor the following Monday morning and said you ought to be ashamed of yourself coming into the pulpit unprepared and wasting our time and so on and so on and so on and Corlin Meyer read that letter and then he filed it in file 13 He threw it in the garbage can. Later she repented that she had written such a nasty letter to her pastor and she wrote him a second letter and asked him to forgive her because she shouldn't have been so hasty. She shouldn't have done what she did to her pastor and so on and so on. When Meyer read that letter, he took a pen and wrote across the front of it, forgiven, forgotten, forever, signed, Cortland Meyer, and sent it back to her. That's the kind of forgiveness that God gives. Robert Lee was a Nazi criminal. He was a Nazi sympathizer. He was tried at the war crimes trial in Nuremberg, Germany in 1946, right after World War II. He was a Jew baiter anti-Semitic, and he helped to send all those Jews, maybe 6 million of them, to their deaths in 32 concentration camps. During the last days of his... um, He cheated the hangman's noose, by the way, by committing suicide. But in the last days of his life, he seemed to have a change of heart. He recanted. And he said, speaking of Germany, we have forgotten God, and God has forgotten us. There is forgiveness at the father's house. He was moved with compassion. He was motivated with forgiveness. And he was marked with giving. Oh, how he gave to these two sons. He gave to the older son. He gave to the younger son. He gave to the prodigal. He gave to the rebellious older son who remained at home. Look at verse 23. Bring the fat calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. His son had been gone for years. He had disappeared, he was living out in the alley, out in the gutter, and he came home. And he said, let's have a feast. And they made merriment. And he gave to the older son. says in verse 31, he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. He gave out of the abundance of his heart. He gave his best. He gave until he could give no more. What more can we give as Christians? And to give our best. And to give until we can give no more. This is the Calvary view. Forgiveness. Compassion. And giving. These threesome. Will bring people to Christ and to the church. Compassion. Forgiveness. And giving. May I close with this? Dr. William H. Merck was the pastor of Temple Baptist Church on Seven Corners in St. Paul, Minnesota, for nearly 40 years. He had a great desire to win the people of St. Paul to Christ because many of them were unconverted Catholics. And so he held big meetings in the, and rallies in the St. Paul Civic Auditorium. And he invited noted speakers to come and to speak to the crowd, to the folks And he invited a man by the name of Dr. Lehman, who was head of Christ's Home in New York and who was the editor of uh, the Converted Catholic Monthly. But for some reason or other, the St. Paul City Council would not have him. They rejected him. And Dr. Lehman could not come. And so Dr. Merck went down to the chambers of the St. Paul City Council and argued with him and convinced them, and they reversed their decision and Dr. Lehman could come and speak at the St. Paul Civic Auditorium. But this is what I wanted to tell you about Dr. Merck. In 1967, he came west to San Francisco. He came out to speak in the San Francisco Baptist Theological Seminary. And I remember the date. It was February 10th, 1967. He spoke in the chapel to the students. And he told about a man that he had met 29 years before. He was a very wealthy man. And he witnessed to him. He talked about his own life, that how he had lived in sin and, and how he had been a used car dealer and smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. And somehow God reached down and saved him and called him into the Christian ministry. This man that Dr. Merck was speaking to was a very wealthy man. He owned stock in M&M Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing a conglomerate in the Twin Cities and after he had given him his witness he kept up his acquaintance through the years he wrote him letters he sent him literature he kept very close to him and then in 1966 this wealthy man called Dr. Merck down to Florida he asked him when I die will you preach my funeral and Dr. Merck said yes will you preach the funeral of my wife and Dr. Merck said yes but he wanted to talk to him about his soul about the fact that he was a sinner and that he was facing death and had no place to go And Dr. Merck said there in that palatial home in Florida that man and his wife bowed and confessed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and accepted the story the message of the cross and the message of the Bible and passed from death into life four months later Dr. Merck held this man's funeral at Hamlin University, which is a Methodist institution in the city of St. Paul. He was a trustee of that university. And there in the midst of that aristocracy and sophistication, Dr. Merck said, he told about how this man had humbled himself and become obedient at the cross and had passed from death into life. And this moment, was in the very presence of God that man never forgot dr. Merck's message not in 29 years and I would say that dr. Merck traveled the Calvary Road he was a remarkable man there are hundreds of Christians in this service sitting before me hundreds of Christians who know what it is about forgiveness and compassion and have given and given and given all you have to do is look at these magnificent facilities and the opulence that are connected with it and all you have to do is look at the bulletin and see the outreach and the magnificent work that you have with youth and older people and everyone in between given and given and given but could there be in the midst of this group of Christians someone who lives in the alley or someone who lives in the balcony you're impressed with your own importance and you've extolled yourself and exalted yourself come down, come down Christ can help you, Christ can save you just as he has the rest of us and could there be in the midst of this crowd someone who lives in the alley someone who lives in the gutter you're so dissatisfied with your life you've prostituted yourself to base ends, and even you've thought about suicide taking your own life Come out, come out from your sin. God says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love and with loving kindness have I drawn thee and I will engrave thee upon the palm of my hand. He that has the Son has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but has passed from death into life. Come and join the rest of us as we sing, as we live the Christian life. And as we sing the song, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Inscripturated revelation, which comes to us today with such power and force. There are so many who live in the gutter; so many who live in the balcony. We pray that they will come down and come out. Our relatives, our friends, our soldiers, people that we have known through the years. May they find the Calvary view and live with compassion, forgiveness, and to give until we can give no more. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.